We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Kate Lucy, a journalist who writes on mental health. She's the author of an excellent new book called Get a Grip, Love, Another Helpful Mental Health Advice. Kate has been officially depressed for six years, and in the book she shares her journey from can't get out of bed to separating illness from myself to trying to actually live. She explains what hasn't helped, bad therapy, knockout medication, and friends with too many opinions, and what has helped, good therapy, well-prescribed medication, and laughing at depression. Now, Kate, the narrative around at the moment is that we're much happier talking about mental health, and that's good, isn't it? Would you agree with that statement? Yes, I think it's definitely good that we're talking about it more. The more people talk about it, the less of a stigma, I guess, is attached to it and the less isolated it is it's a, as something that people don't understand. You know, obviously in years gone by, people would be put in a straitjacket and sent to an asylum if they had any kind of mental health problems. And people, I guess, do still think a little bit like that. And people still use the phrase like mental hospitals and stuff. But I think the more conversations about things like depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, anything like that is helpful to making it more understandable and then less Less of a a joke, I guess, to people who may not have understood it properly before. Now, you were officially diagnosed six years ago, but when do you think the depression might have started? I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think back to when I was a teenager and I was really down then, but I put that down to just teenage hormones and listening to new metal and being a bit of a goth. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that was the beginnings of depression or if that was just hormone overload or a bit of both. I'm not sure. But I think it started probably a year or so before I went to the doctor and got a diagnosis, maybe a year and a half. And it started with a lot of physical symptoms that I didn't relate to anything mental. I was going to get those checked out. And every time I went to have another test or a scan or anything, nothing was found. And there was a nurse who did say to me at one time, I think you're depressed. I think this is why you're having all these symptoms. So that was kind of the big reveal. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm quite sad. (laughs) And it is strange that it should be a big reveal. Yeah, I guess I just never thought that I would be depressed, which sounds really stupid when I say it now. But I don't know, I've always been like quite energetic and positive and really social and, you know, just enjoy kind of an extrovert part of myself as well. So then when she said, I think you're depressed, I was like, but I I can't be depressed because I'm walking and talking and I can still make a joke and have a laugh with my friends. But then I didn't understand it fully and didn't realise that you can actually function and do those things if you're lucky. So yeah, it was a shock. And depression is something that happens to other people anyway, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. People who look like Eeyore from, you know, like very mopey, very down in the dumps, not people who can go to work and lead a meeting in front of 20 people and, you know, be confident and talkative. So what were the physical symptoms? I was getting really, really dizzy. I'd come back from a bit of traveling and I was then convinced that I'd caught some kind of tropical bug or something. And obviously if you Google, then you just get told how many days you have left to live. So (laughs) I was was really dizzy to the extent that I was falling over a lot and 
or feeling like I was going to fall over all the time. Like I remember this at one point, I was sitting in a cafe and I was like gripping the table, like white knuckle gripping the table because I just felt like I was about to fall backwards off my chair and take the table with me. And it was like so, so dizzy. And I went to have my ears checked to see if there was any kind of thing with the inner ear and balance and all that kind of stuff. I had an MRI scan on my brain. Maybe it was the ears and the MRI for that. And then they couldn't find anything. And I was also feeling very sick and very nauseous all the time. And I was taking like anti-sickness, anti-nausea medication because I just always felt like I was on the verge of throwing up. And again, I had tests for that. I had a little camera put down my throat into my belly, which is as gross as it sounds. <laughs> and they were looking around to see if there was a tropical bug in there or if anything was kind of going wrong, but everything was as it should have been. So yeah, it was after a lot of those tests and when the nurse told me like they didn't find anything and I was annoyed because I wanted them to find something and go, oh, you've got this, just take this and it'll be fine. But she said they didn't find anything. I cried very on brand. And she said like, this is good news that they didn't find anything. And I was like, well, what's wrong with me? I just want to know what's wrong with me. And then she was suggesting that it could be something mental. And in her follow-up letter that she sent to my GP, she'd written that I should be looked at for depression or something to that extent. And your book is divided into sort of different sections of the sort of unhelpful advice that you might get from your friends. One of the chapters is called, Just Get Some Pills Then, Dear. What was your experience with pills, dear? (laughs) I like the way you say that. When I went to the GP eventually and said, I think I'm depressed. And he said, why? And then I just cried everywhere. (laughs) Um, And he said, okay, like, we'll start you on some medication, like, if you'd be happy to take it. And I was, I would have taken anything. So, yes. And he prescribed me onto sertraline alongside CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I got from the wonderful health system in the UK, the NHS. So I started that and taking the sertraline. I was just on the 20 milligram, like one pill a day dose of sertraline. And it didn't help with the dizziness. It kind of made me more dizzy and more unfocused. And I think I felt quite sick when I was on it. Like the side effects just were not great. And I thought, oh God, like if this is the only option, (laughs) it's making me feel worse. What am I going to do? I didn't realize that there were so many different types of antidepressant medication. Yeah, I was quite shocked. I think in your book, you say something like 40 different types. Yeah, there's so many. I didn't realise, I guess it's a bit like the contraceptive pill for women, like you have different hormones in your body. So you need to find the one that has a mix up of chemicals and hormones that works for your body chemistry. So I went back to the GP and said, it's not helping. I'm doomed. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a depressive speaking. I'm doomed. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Goodbye. And we moved on to citalopram. So these were all SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And like you have to take a while for the previous drug that you were on to get out of your system and taper off responsibly, not just go cold turkey. And then you have to, again, let the new drug have a while to absorb into your system as well. So Talipram just knocked me out. I was exhausted. Like I was so tired. I didn't even eat very much, which is shocking for me. I was just on the sofa feeling so heavy, like I couldn't even walk to the fridge which is usually my go-to place and it just it made me so so tired um so heavy and achy and very numb I just I lost a lot of feeling and it just that one didn't work for me either and then the next round was fluoxetine which in the states is Prozac so I was a bit dubious about that because just of its feature in sitcoms and you know that like Prozac turns you into like a joyful robot. You can't feel anything and it's just like on a default happy setting. All right. What was that like? Well, that didn't happen, <laughs> but I was a bit worried that it would kind of remove all natural feeling and just make it artificial. 
Because it is quite famous for reducing sex drive, isn't it? Yes. I actually found that happened with citalopram significantly, but not so much with Prozac. It just, I need a bit more convincing. (laughs) Good. Which is fine, yeah. Not that anyone should ever have to be convinced into it. but Yeah, so Prozac didn't turn me into a robot, but it also didn't have the knocking out side effects that I had with citalopram or the sickness that I had with sertraline. The main side effect I have is it makes me really, really thirsty. And I just, I get through like litres of water a day, but that's not the worst thing. And are you still on it? Yes, I'm still on it. I take 60 milligrams a day now. And how's it helped you? It doesn't fix you at all, medication. Well, I certainly have experienced it hasn't fixed me, but it has definitely lifted a lot of the fog and kind of made it easier to see clearly and think about what you're going through and what you need to do to help yourself rather than being lost in it, if that makes any sense. Yep. It makes an awful lot of sense. It sort of gets you onto a platform where you can actually begin to work on yourself and actually try and move forward rather than just incapable of getting to that point. Am I putting it in a good kind of way? Yes, exactly that. Yes, I completely agree. You know, it's not like when you take an antibiotic for tonsillitis or whatever, and it clears it all up in seven to 10 days, but it's, I don't know, it just makes things more manageable, I think. And well, there was a time that I thought, oh, I think I'm grand now. I don't need to take these anymore. And I started to taper myself off them in a way that I thought was responsible, kind of going down to taking it every other day and then half a dose every other day and then nothing. But you should just never do that. <laughs> you should just always, if you're going to change your medication, like speak to a healthcare professional, because even the way I did it was really affecting. And when I was off the drugs, I realized actually I needed them because I went straight back down into the darkness and had no motivation or energy to try and do anything to help myself. And I didn't realise until I stopped what an impact the drugs were actually making. So depression is quite a spectrum. How was it affecting you? It was affecting my relationship for sure. I was with my boyfriend at the time and we'd been together for, I think when I first started showing the symptoms, we'd been together for about 14 years, 13 years. And because I didn't understand what was happening and I just wanted a lot of time on my own and to myself and whether that was just to go into the bedroom and have a cry or have a lie down in the dark and just not speak to anybody. I needed and wanted a lot of time alone and that didn't translate to me or to him into me being depressed. It came off as like, you've annoyed me, I don't want to see you or you've done something wrong and I don't want to spend time with you or I don't like you anymore. And I can completely see how that would have been the case. But at the time, I didn't cotton on to that at all. And it was only when we talked about it later that he said that he thought that I was just angry at him, annoyed at him, going off him, having an affair, maybe. Like, oh, to think of the energy to have an affair. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, if you're sitting in a darkened room crying, it doesn't sound like a very good affair to me. <laughs> no, maybe I need to uh, change my perspective on that. But yeah, so it definitely affected my personal like, romantic relationship. And were you functioning at work or were you having problems at work as well? I was functioning at work at the time. I think that was probably one of the downfalls was that I made sure that I was completely fine at work and that I was showing up to the meetings and I was still doing my job and doing it well. I'd cry on the way home on public transport because nobody cares about you in London. I'd cry in the bathroom. I would like cry at every opportunity that I had to myself. It just the tears just came out. But when I was at work and in front of people, I was very together. And that sounds like part of the problem, because the more energy you put into being on and being fine, the harder it gets over time. Yes, exactly. And I think I was doing such a big job of pretending I was fine at work that I just couldn't be fine at home because I expunged all my energy. And maybe I was focusing on the wrong... I don't know, I shouldn't have been pretending to be fine at home, but I was focusing so much on pretending to be fine at work that 
anything that happened outside of work wasn't a priority and maybe it should have been. And this is a really difficult question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is how does depression work? How does it choose its victims? I think is the way you put it. Have you any ideas? I have no ideas. <laughs> so, but please don't read the book. <laughs> In the research that I've done and speaking to psychologists or healthcare professionals, it seems that there is some research that it could be genetic, but more research is needed. There are some links to show that it could be hereditary, but there's not enough strength in those links to make a statement that depression is hereditary. Obviously, a lot of people will suffer depression from a specific trauma and postnatal depression is very, very common. Or if you experience a loss in the family or any kind of sexual assault or any, any trauma can result in depression. Because what's often talked about is situational depression. So yeah. if your partner has died, then you will be depressed. If the change of hormones after having a baby yes. could cause situational depression. You know, if something terrible has happened to you, then this might be part of your body closing down to deal with it. Exactly. But what you're saying is this was not situational depression. There was nothing that you could point your finger at in particular. No. There was no, there was nothing to blame or put a cause on. And I did feel quite stupid, actually, when I went to the doctor for the first time and I thought maybe I'm just wasting their time and they're going to tell me I'm not depressed enough. (laughs) Because nothing had happened, because I didn't have a trauma. I mean, I've experienced death and loss in my family and friends, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ever pile anything up to being a traumatic experience that has then depressed me for life. And I just thought like, I don't have anything to be sad about. Why am I so sad? Which I think a lot of people think when they go through um, depressive episodes. On the surface, everything is hunky-dory with a job and a family and a place to live and a hot boyfriend and inside everything's falling apart because there's no specific reason for it. I felt like I should be getting myself together, like I should get a grip, like I should try and get over this because I had no reason to be so sad, so cheer up. Which is another one of the unhelpful pieces of advice that people give, isn't it? Yeah, try some positive thinking. Yeah, somebody said to me once, like, going home and thinking about your depression isn't going to help you. I was like, you don't understand. You don't think about your depression. It's just there. Now, one of the theories about depression is it's quite a lot about negative self-talk and cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT, is all about retraining your mind to think in a different kind of way. How did you find CBT? I hated it. To be honest, I know it works for a lot of people. I've spoken to many, many people who've had really great experiences with cognitive behavioral therapy and it's helped them a lot with their anxiety and depression or any other kind of mental illness they might be suffering. But for me, I just, I couldn't get to grips with it. I couldn't put into a box what I was feeling and why. So it's very much like about looking at your thoughts and your behaviors and your patterns in either how you talk to yourself or how you talk to others or just how you behave in general and then trying to work out why you do that and what triggers you to do that. And if you know there's something that makes you more stressed or that makes you feel down or that makes you feel anxious, but I just, I couldn't pinpoint it on anything. I was just like, I feel awful all the time and I don't know why. So then when the questions were like, well, what happens before you feel awful? Like, I was just, I was just like a bratty teenager. I think I was just like, nothing. I just feel rubbish. Nothing happens. It's just there all the time. I'm always sad. I don't know why I can't fill in a box to say this is making me feel worse or this makes me feel better because sometimes things that I thought would make me feel better don't have any impact at all and I still feel awful. So I'm sorry, I can't fill out your CBT sheet. And I just had, I think, two or three sessions to try and do it, try and be good at it. But then I felt like I'd failed CBT as well because I couldn't do that. Oh dear, that doesn't help, does it? I failed CBT. It's hardly going to cheer you up, is it? (laughs) No, 
But then I decided to look into talking therapy. What was that experience like? It was long and I was lucky enough that I had a job that paid me a decent wage because it's expensive. Not everybody can afford this kind of help. There are great charities that do offer free counselling or many reduced sessions. And I did end up going through a charity when I found my therapist that I stayed with. I went through Mind, which is a brilliant mental health charity in the UK. But to start off with, I went on, I think, the you know counselling directory website or the Psychologist Association and found people who basically are based on geography, like the commute and what tube I could get there. And I think I spoke to three people before I found somebody who I liked. And a lot of it was to do with me and my impatience. Your impatience? Yeah, I just wanted to be fixed. So I wanted to go to a session and have somebody tell me, oh, it's because you do this. I can see that, right? So if you stop doing this, you'll be fine. All right. Don't wear blue on a Tuesday and you'll feel better. So you were looking for a miracle cure, were you? Yes. And I wasn't ready to accept that it would be a long process because depression is very deeply embedded into my brain and can't just be plucked out by a chirpy therapist in North London. And I was getting annoyed with everybody asking about my family because I'm really defensive of my family because I get along with my parents really well. My sister's my best friend. Like we have a really good relationship. And I was just thinking like, move on, stop asking me about my family. Like they didn't mess me up. Like I'm not a Philip Larkin poem. Just move on to the next subject. Like I had a great childhood. I still have a great time with my family. It's not them. But then later on, I think I did some reading or I can't remember. A friend explained it to me a while ago and it didn't sink in, but I eventually cottoned on to the, it's not about how your family messed you up. It's about your relationships and how you established early relationships and your kind of attachment style to other people and how your brain works in forming bonds and connections, which makes a lot more sense that a therapist would want to figure that out. And I just thought they were trying to slag off my mum. So (laughs) I wasn't into it. Oh, Um, and I think that what I would say is if you're feeling like that, to actually say that to your therapist, to actually have a dialogue about it so that one, the therapist can possibly explain why they're doing it. Or if actually you don't want to talk about your mum, there's a thousand and one other ways to go into the necessary material. But if you don't speak about it, then the therapist doesn't know. It's actually possible to talk to your therapist rather than have to take the tablets of stone they're passing down to you. Yes, exactly. And I think that's the most important thing to remember about therapy is that they can only help you with what you give them. And if you're not completely honest and you don't reveal, not reveal, I guess I keep saying the word reveal, but if you don't kind of share with them exactly how you're feeling or exactly how things affect you, or you know, even if you've done stuff that makes you feel like a bad person or that you don't think is good behavior, like if you've cheated on somebody or if you let down a friend or if you skived off work or I don't know, if you did anything that you would be ashamed about, you still bring it up because they can't actually pull it all out of your brain just by looking at you cry. Now, one of the good ideas that you got from, was it the therapist that we're talking about, the 54321 technique? No, that was a different therapist actually that I worked with for a lot of research for my book. This is a therapist called Kate Mason. I worked with her quite closely and I was looking at the brain behaviours and how depression and anxiety affect people. And she gave me a really good technique, which, as you said, it's called the 54321 technique. And this is to help under what circumstances? So this is when you're feeling overwhelmed. And I think it can be overwhelmed with anxiety, overwhelmed with depression and sadness, or just feeling like you're not, and I hate this phrase because it's very American, but like you're not very present and that very in the moment but I can't find a better way to phrase it than that. And so 
Do you think this is something that would have been useful when you were gripping the side of the cafe table to use this technique at that point? Yes. Yes, that would have been a perfect time to use it if I'd known about it. And actually, I do use it myself regularly, but sometimes I, I shorten it down to kind of a three two one technique rather than a 5-4-3-2-1 technique because I guess I'm still very impatient. <laughs> <laughs> so let's actually do it. And what I invite people to do is obviously if you're driving, please do this exercise later, but let's just sort of take, has about three deep breaths together and then you can lead us through the exercise. Is that okay, Kate? Yeah, absolutely. So let's go. So off you go. So the five, four, three, two, one technique starts off with naming five things that you can see right now. So just look right. around and see. What okay, I can see my red telephone. I can see a copy of your book. Outside the window, I can see the fact that the leaves are coming out on the trees. I can see my red coffee cup. I think I'm up to four now. And I can see, of course, my microphone. <laughs> are you quite into red? Red phone, red cup, red jacket behind. Yep. Red's a good colour. And then after you've named five things you can see right now, think about four things that you can hear, if you can hear four things. And they can be even your own breathing or the kind of movement of this saliva in your mouth or distant traffic, anything that you can hear. Well, I can hear your voice for starters. Lucky you. And I can hear the sound that the micro not the microphone, my headphones against my jacket is making. What else can I hear? I can hear a hum of a computer. And there's a very distant sound of traffic. And then think about three things you can feel. So this could be your feet in your shoes, a pen in your hand. Your Yep, because we've got a camera link. You can see me holding this pen. And I'm also gripping onto the back of the chair for some reason. And I can feel that. And I can feel my feet on the ground. That feels quite good, the feet on the ground. Yeah. Then think about two things that you can smell, which I always find a bit tricky. Mm. Well, I can sort of smell the fact that this is going to sound a bit weird, but it's actually quite sunny and spring-like. And I can smell the remains of the coffee that I drunk out of the red cup. (laughs) And then finally, one thing you can taste, even if it's just a sip of water or the inside of your own mouth. Yeah, I can taste the saliva in my mouth. And that sort of makes us very grounded in the moment here and now. We're not thinking about what's going to happen in the future. We're not thinking about the past. We're actually here now, you and me together. And that feels better, doesn't it? It's sort of calmed us down. I think it is very calming and it's very, as you said, brings you into the here and now and kind of gives you a, a refresh, I think, a small refresh. If I'm out somewhere and I'm feeling very overwhelmed, sometimes I just do a three, two, one, and I I look at three things I can see, two things I can hear, and one thing I can feel, for example. I'll just take any of them and do a three, two, one, because I might not feel like I have enough time to do the whole five, four, three, two, one, which obviously, as we've just seen, doesn't take very long at all. I'm just impatient. Um, (laughs) But I do think it's a very good kind of grounding exercise and it does calm you down. And it does, if anything is like getting too stressful or too overwhelming in any sense, it's a good idea to do that or any kind of semblance of that because it just kind of presses pause. I'm going to quote back something from your book to you. You are not worthless. That 
seems to be quite a common feeling with people who are depressed. You are not worthless. Did you feel worthless a lot? Yes, definitely. And still often now. But I think when depression is really, really taking over your brain and, you know, I kind of visualize it sometimes as like a black mold going on the otherwise very healthy, very clever brain. But when it's really taking over, you feel like you can't do anything and that you're not any use to people. You're not lovable. You're not employable. You're not likable. You're not clever enough. Like, I don't know, everything. You're the worst at everything. Your book is not good enough. (laughs) Well, (laughs) now I feel (laughs) But that's the sort of thing that you feel, don't you, when you're there. So how do you combat that? I think it's, for me, I'm still working on that. And I still do feel very worthless a lot of the time. And People say that depressives who kill themselves are selfish because they don't think about the impact it will have on people who are left behind. But I think there is a point that you can get to where you feel that it would be better if you went and that the impact would be minimal and people might be relieved, which is obviously a horrible thing to think, but it can get very real when you think about that. So I think talking to other people for me helps to combat it. I'm living with my sister now and if I say to her how I'm feeling, then she'll always be quite scandalized that I'm like saying horrible things about myself and kind of point out facts and logic to talk me out of it. What I often say is accept the feelings and challenge the thoughts. So you accept the fact that you're feeling bad, but it's actually terribly useful to actually name it and then challenge some of the thoughts that, you know, I'm a hopeless sister. You're probably not a hopeless sister. And sometimes if you just change it very slightly to sometimes I'm not a good sister, which is possibly, you know, sometimes accurate if you've just drunk the last of the milk and you haven't bought some new stuff, but it's only sometimes, it's not all the time. Yeah. And sometimes also changing the statement into a question. So why am I a bad sister, for example? Then you've stopped going into this very negative spiral down. Yes. I think that's actually what my sister does use to help. She always talks about facts and it's not opinion, which you can bat away an opinion, but if it's actual, a cold, hard fact, it's not as easy to argue with. And have you found where this voice of the inner critic comes from? Is it ever somebody else's voice? It's very much my voice, but it is my voice when it's been kind of possessed by the depression demons. I did try to name it and give it another voice and um, I called it Nigel for a while. <laughs> I called it nice called Nigel. And like when that voice would come into my head, I'd just tell Nigel to leave it alone or like, oh, Nigel's back or Nigel's like talking crap at me again, like bugger off Nigel. But then I don't know, it, when it's constant, it's hard to differentiate between what's Nigel and, and what's me. Yeah, sometimes people find it quite helpful to say, thank you, Nigel, for your opinion. That's your opinion. Thank you for it, but I'm going to think something else. Yeah, and I think that comes back to your point about kind of accepting the thought and then challenging the feeling, which I think is a great strategy. But yes, it's very much me. And the more you have the thoughts, the more difficult it becomes to separate them. And I don't know where they come from, which is why I wasn't very good at CBT, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, I guess a lot of people with depression and anxiety, they don't know where the thoughts come from. And that's half of the problem is that there's nothing to point a finger at and say, it's because of this. I just need to get rid of this in my life or get over this or move on from that or stop doing this. When there's nothing to point a finger at, it's just even murkier. 
And this technique is not so much pointing a finger somewhere, but just slowing down the reaction. So rather than it being automatically accepted, you're just putting a little bit of a pause in there. And in that tiny pause, you can begin to differentiate it between the voice of your inner critic and your own voice, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. It's a good way of putting it. As I say, the chapters are named after different pieces of advice that people might give you. Ever think you should cut back on the drink, doll? Did you ever think of cutting back on the drink, doll? I always think that I should cut back on the drink, doll, but then I haven't got there yet. It's an easy way to feel like a quick fix, I think, but in the long term, it's not very helpful. And, you know, there's an argument that I medicate with tablets, so why can't I medicate with vodka? But vodka's not meant to <laughs> help you like that. Makes you, it can make you feel better and more confident and positive after a couple of drinks, but then the next day you're likely to feel worse. Or even if you carry on having a, more than a couple of drinks and having more drinks than you can count on your fingers, then you'll probably feel worse at that point as well. Because alcohol does have a depressive effect on us, doesn't it? It does. And I think if alcohol was invented now, there's no way it would ever be allowed on sale, let alone as different flavours and cocktails and mixes of deliciousness. They'd just ban it because of the inebriating effect, obviously, but also it is a depressant. To me, it makes no sense to be having medicine to go against depression and then chugging a big bottle of depression at the same time. Like, Why make it harder for yourself? So if you were going to go through the things that have helped for you, what would you say has helped? Therapy, absolutely. A mixture of therapy and medication. Annoyingly exercise. And it's annoying because you have to have the motivation to do it. But I think you'll never keep doing it if you're trying to do something that you hate all the time. Like if you hate running, don't try and go for a run because you just won't ever do it. And then you'll feel like a failure for not doing it. And exercise can be stretching or yoga or Pilates or something that's less kind of cardio and seem like effort. Take the dog for a walk. I always find that always cheers me up. Yeah. Going outside in general, that always helps me. And looking at water, whether it's the sea or a river or any kind of body of water, I find very, very mm. something because there's always something happening on it, whether, even if it's just the reflection of the tree or the sky or the movement or if there's a duck, what a thrill. But yeah, going outside definitely helps and looking at water definitely helps. When I lived in France, I used to go and sit in those cafes on the terraces and just kind of have a coffee or wine or whatever and just be on my own but around lots of people and feel like I was part of something and feel a bit more connected and even if it was just people watching and eating cheese for two hours I mean that sounds pretty great right now so being outside and being around people I think can sometimes help when you don't have to be part of a crowd you can just be there and not interact and what you said is separating illness from myself. You say that in the book and I put that in the introduction. So explain that to me. Trying to recognise that depression is an illness and I have an illness and it's not me. It's not, oh, there's Kate, she's depressed, she's gloomy. Like Kate isn't like that really. It's the illness that's making her like that. And to try and really think about it as a separate illness and say, you know, if I had IBS or something, I wouldn't be eating these foods that irritate my gut because it would make it worse. And I have depression, so should I really be drinking that fourth gin and tonic? Because it's irritating my depression. And trying to really, really accept it and manage it and think about what makes things better and what makes things worse. And if I am feeling lighter, then to use that opportunity to think about when things get dark again, because they will. For me, they will. 
maybe one day it, it will stay light for a long time and it won't get dark again. But to think about when I am in that place, what do I need to do to get through it? Do I need anything from any other people or do I need to explain to them that actually this is what's happening and I'm going to go and do this? So it's not a repeat of my ex-boyfriend thinking that I hated him or was angry at him or I don't want anybody else to feel like it's something they've done when it's just something that I need to do for me. And laughter seems to be part of this equation as well. Yes. I think if you can laugh, then try and get as many laughs into your day as you can. (laughs) Even if it's watching like an episode of Friends that you've seen a hundred times and you know the script or, I don't know, reading a funny tweet or talking to somebody or listening to a podcast, anything. Joy is very, very important and it can seem like quite selfish to bring a lot of joy into your life if you're listening to things or watching things or reading things that you find enjoyable and funny. It can seem a bit indulgent sometimes, I think, but just do it. It's not indulgent. Joy is important. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of becoming a supporter of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is you can write in with a letter and there's also all sorts of other special advantages at the higher levels. So go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcasts, and you'll find out more about that. I had a bout of depression where all I wanted to do was lie in bed and sometimes I would weep for no reason whatsoever. Normally, I'm really positive and plough on. Honestly, it was not nice. My husband tried to be supportive, but he ran out of patience and seemed to think it was about something he'd done or hadn't done. Fortunately, I seem to have more energy and I'm looking forward to a holiday that we're going on, but I'm worried that I'll slip back into depression. Sometimes I feel like I'm on high alert. Is this helpful or making matters worse? I just don't want to go back to that dark place again. It felt like I was in a cage. So is this something that you can relate to, Kate? Absolutely. And my heart goes out to this person. You know, I had similar experiences to how they describe their husband thinking that the husband has done something or that hasn't done something and that it's the husband's fault, which is very, very easy for anybody who lives with somebody who's depressed or who loves somebody who's depressed. It's very easy for you to think that you might be to blame. I'm going to read a comment from your book, which I love. Depression isn't an illness that can be loved out of you. No. So however much somebody loves you, they can't magic the depression out of you. Exactly. And I think people tend to think that they can because depression is so much about mood and feeling. And, you know, so is love. But you can't love tonsillitis out of somebody. Like You can't love depression out of somebody. It's an illness, even though it is more emotional an illness than, say, I don't know, I keep thinking of tonsillitis. It's like the only illness I can think of. There's only one other illness in the world beyond depression. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? (laughs) You're either depressed or you've got tonsillitis. But yes, this person experience I can absolutely relate to. And I completely get that they're worried that they're going to go back into depression. And, you know, it's a valid concern because depression, I like to talk about it like weather, like really, really rained and stormed. And now it's sunny, but that doesn't mean that bad weather might not come back. And it doesn't mean also that we're always going to be stuck in winter. Yes, exactly. Or it's always going to be rainy. 
even in England, it doesn't rain all the time. Are you in Wales at the moment? (laughs) I'm in Wales, yes, and it's sunny today. And Wales has a reputation for being wet, but it's not wet all the time, is it? It's not wet all the time. Sometimes it's foggy and you can tell the rain might come. And I think it's the same with your mind. And it's about looking after yourself. And, you know, if you know that if the fog starts to come in a bit, if you haven't got enough sleep or if you've had too much alcohol or if you've been too busy and social and you'll be knackered the next day, maybe don't put in more socialising plans or don't put in more late night activity. Like plan to get some sleep, plan to not drink, plan to not speak to people if that's what you need. There's a book that I'm going to put in the show notes, which is called The Wisdom of Depression. And the idea is, is that depression is a perfectly natural human emotion and it has some uses to it. And the reason it's there is to make you slow down and the the sort of ruminating on the couch is a positive thing to actually think about what isn't actually working at the moment. What do I need to change? But we don't like that because we're impatient. We want to, you know, get out. We've got a thousand and one things to do. So we don't actually do that and we ignore it. Mm -hmm. We ignore the wisdom of depression. And then it turns from being a normal human emotion that comes and goes. And the idea is to stop and think, "Hmm, why am I down at the moment? What's the issue that the wisdom of depression is trying to tell me at the moment, which could be I'm actually trying to fill my social calendar far too much for me to actually enjoy it. Or I'm seeing people that I feel I ought to see rather than people I want to see or whatever it actually is. And instead of actually listening to that, we quash it down. You know, we, and this is a phrase I hate and I'm glad you pointed up, man up and get on with it. And we don't actually take the wisdom of depression. And then it turns from depression, which is a normal human emotion that comes and goes like the rain does, into clinical depression, which is like the front of weather is just stuck there permanently. What do you think of that idea? I think a lot of being able to live better, manage and help yourself with depression is about accepting it and just acknowledging that I have it and it might come back. You know, I might have a depressive episode or I might be always feeling a bit down or it might last for a month and then I'll be okay for a while and then it'll come back for another week. And a lot of it is about accepting and not trying to bat these thoughts away and not trying to ignore it and really recognising that it's something that's happening to you and there are things you can do to look after yourself. And I just think in those lighter moments, it's just such a good opportunity to think about how did you feel in the last bit of darkness and what do you need to tell anybody who you live with that this is how you're feeling and this is what you're going through. And if the rain comes back again, then you'll probably do this. And even if you don't need anything from them, just to have them knowing that you're doing this because of the weather in your brain and you're not doing this because they've pissed you off. I think just recognising the feelings, what's happening in your mind and trying to just acknowledge it, then challenge it, like you said, accept the feeling and challenge the thought. I really like that. The correspondent says, sometimes I feel like I'm on high alert. Is this helpful or making matters worse? What do you think about being on high alert? I guess maybe they're talking about feeling on high alert as if they are constantly checking in with themselves to be like, am I feeling sad? Is this the beginning of something? Like, am I going to slip back into the darkness? Is this the beginning of bad weather again? Which, I mean, it sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. I've been there. And I think it's good to be checking in with yourself. I think that you shouldn't be on high alert for one particular feeling, but aware of all of your feelings so that you're enjoying the joy when you have it, you're having the anger when you have it, so that you're actually having all of your feelings rather than actually 
ignoring every feeling beyond the rain about to arrive. Otherwise, you're not actually enjoying the blustery day or the sunshine or the cold, sharp day. You're only interested in one type of weather. So I'm sort of feeling you want to be more in touch with your feelings and less on high alert, which sounds a bit like a contradiction in terms, but I hope it makes sense. What what do you think, Kate? And I think exactly, if you're on high alert for the sadness and the bad weather, you'll miss the rest of the weather, exactly like you said. And it will be hard to not be on high alert if this person's gone through a depressive episode. It sounds like they've been quite shocked by it and are scared of it happening again, which is completely fair and understandable. But I think really thinking about what happened to you last time and how you felt and if there was anything that you needed in terms of even if it was just lying in bed all day in the dark and not being spoken to by anybody, like just being left alone, if that's what you needed, then tell your partner that that's what you might need next time. But you don't know. And I think it is easy to be scared. It's a scary illness. But if this person can talk to their husband and get the support of somebody else, I think that would be hugely beneficial to them both. So what advice would you give to somebody who is the partner of somebody who's depressed? I think it can often feel like it's your fault or whichever side you're getting from your depressed partner, you can feel shortchanged, I think, because if they're functioning well at work and putting on the jazz hands in front of their friends and family and social circle, but then when they get home, they can kind of take off the mask and not give into it, but just feel the feelings and not pretend then you can feel like, oh, well, why they pretend with everybody else but me? Why don't I get this nice shiny side of them? Why do I just get the gloom? And what I would say is that they love you so much, they feel they don't have to perform for you. Yes, exactly that. And then some people will be annoyed if somebody does do the jazz hands for them and is kind of pretending and putting on a mask because it's like, oh, you don't have to pretend with me. It's fine. You can be who you really are. But certainly for me, you know, if I didn't pretend at least sometimes, I probably would never get out of bed. So sometimes pretending is actually, it forces better behavior and healthier habits if you can. I would say ask as well, because every bout of depression is going to be different. There are times when you're going to want somebody to pour you a bath and bring you a drink and generally give you a bit of TLC. And there are other times where you just want to be left alone. Yeah. So I think it's worth, and there are other times you want to be told that your life isn't over. And other times you'll feel that they're cheering you up and you know they're not taking you seriously, which yeah. is incredibly frustrating for somebody on the outside. But ask, what do you need from me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you said, sometimes you want to be left alone. Sometimes you want to be like almost babied and cuddled and wrapped up. When I was with my ex-boyfriend, we talked about how my depression affected me and how it made me feel and how I talked about it, like the weather as well to him. And we then had like a text WhatsApp exchange that if I was feeling particularly low, I would use the rain cloud emoji. Mm -hmm. It was very low effort. I didn't have to describe exactly what I was feeling or going through. I would just text him something like rain cloud emoji today, going to go to bed when I get home or rain cloud emoji will need lots of hugs. And I would say if you're going to see a therapist, an image like the weather is really helpful because it gives a way of talking about it because this is so complex. These sort of kind of symbols are really helpful. Another one that in fact comes from a book, some people say I'm in the swamp. There's a book called Swamplands of the Soul, and I'll put that in the details as well. That's by James Hollis, and that's all about understanding what the depression is trying to tell you. He's a Jungian therapist, and people might find that helpful as well. Yeah, I'll that for sure. 
I think you'll find it a little challenging because he's very much into finding out what is the depression trying to tell you. And it sounds like you don't want to know the answer <laughs> to that question. Uh, I'm very up for being challenged. And I think, you know, sometimes if the stuff that you don't want to know and don't want to think about is the stuff that you really should address. Because if you don't want to let it in, then is it because you know there's something bad there? Are you scared of something? Do you not want to talk about something? And that's always the stuff that you should get into, really. And it's not bad because this division of things into bad and good is part of the problem. Because depression, is it bad? Well, on one level, yes. But on another level, I would say it's probably brought a whole lot of other things into your life that could be described as positive. So what are the positives that you've got out of depression? Ooh. What a question. I think a more honest relationship with my friends and family, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And that makes me feel closer to people who I've talked with about how I'm feeling and all your listeners. Hello. I would say listening to you, you've probably got a better work-life balance because you're less likely to pour everything into work and leave nothing over for your personal life as well. Yes. Would I be right with that? Yeah, you are right. And that comes from having not approached it very well before, as we discussed at the beginning of the show, but I think now I'm very aware it's not all about work. And when I was younger, I put so much emphasis on like having a good career and a good job and kind of, you know, being on a 30 under 30 list, which I never was, but I'll get over it. And so what? Exactly. So what? And it's not what matters. And, you know, people on their deathbeds never say, I wish I'd worked harder or I wish I'd worked more. Or I wish I'd been on the 30 under 30 list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wish I'd been in Forbes. Nobody says that. People talk about their love and their relationships, friends, family, partners. And I think I won't take on a job that's going to impact me to the extent that I'll get too wrapped up in it, that I won't have time for friends and family, or I'll get too involved, or it sounds too demanding. Like there was definitely a period where I would have, you know, read job descriptions that ask you to do so much for just one person. And I would have gone, yeah, 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 amazing. I'd love the opportunity to do that. That'd be, that'd be incredible. <laughs> I read the job descriptions and I just go, uh, you having a laugh? That's not one person's job. That's three people's job that you're trying to get one sucker to do and it's not going to be me. Yeah. And I think you know yourself better. Absolutely. Yeah. So depression, good or bad? <laughs> I mean, bad, but you can take good things out of it, I think. So that's what I'm trying to say is that sometimes if we get ourselves into very black and white language, that makes everything worse. Yeah, exactly. So I've had you on the Meaningful Life as a witness here. That means I have to ask you what makes your life meaningful. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but family and friends for sure. Mm -hmm. And having relationships with other people that make you feel joy, that make you feel loved and close and make you feel appreciated. And to know that you can do the same for other people and make other people feel loved and wanted and appreciated and respected. And also travel. I'm very, very into travel and exploring new places. And I think that is something that gives me reason to get out of bed in the morning is if I'm away and I need to explore somewhere new or go and see something that I've not seen before or, you know, be somewhere I've never been. And it will make me feel like I'm missing out if I don't go and do that. And I think the traveling gives me a lot of purpose. So looking forward to doing more of that this year. 
Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life. But this isn't where the conversation ends, because if you're a member of our supporters circle, you'll have a chance to hear me and Kate reflect on what each of us have learned from this conversation. And Kate is also going to share three things she knows deep down to be true. If you'd like to find out more about being able to hear the bonus material, it's www.andrewtmarshall.com forward slash podcast. And for the time being, Kate, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.